Acts chapter 6. Some people ask why we don't have like a high reverent service. I think we have a high reverent service, but not a very traditional service. The problem is we can't. That's why. We are, we are pathologically unable. And so it would just be even more awkward if we tried to do that. Um, Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7 is where we are in God's word this morning. As we continue on. We have been uh, looking at some of the main challenges that have faced the early church, both the external challenges and the internal challenges, that, and how the gospel has continued to advance in chapters 3, really through what we'll see in through chapter 7, despite the fact there is great persecution and despite the fact there are great internal tr- struggles within the church. Last week, we looked at the fact that they were struggling with the internal challenge of hypocrisy and phoniness and liars in the church. And this week we come, we come to a new form of a challenge. Acts chapter 6, hear God's word. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, Full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This sends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. You know, it has often not stood forever. Our churches in America... And I'm not talking about the church buildings. Uh, we are known and have become increasingly known for our divisiveness in the church. There's one story. There's two churches right down the road from each other that used to be one church. And they split about 40 years ago over fried chicken. They were having a picnic on the ground and two ladies who didn't care for each other Both brought fried chicken. Well, the preacher, the poor preacher, not knowing about this feud and the fact that these two ladies had brought competing fried chicken, stopped at one end of the table, grabbed a piece of chicken, and commented of how wonderful it was and perhaps that it was the best chicken he had ever eaten. Well, at that statement, a group of people from two particular families picked up their things and within a few weeks had started their own church. If only that weren't true. Tom Rayner, who is a popular blogger and a prominent church, has a prominent church leadership podcast, did an informal survey via his Twitter feed on the major fights in churches that led to significant division and even church splits. And he said there were many normal ones, the normal ones being usually about worship and worship style. But then he listed off some of the more unusual ones, and here are some of the ones that he listed from his top 25 said one church had a great divide over an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. I think Chris 
Chris's beard is well trimmed. Uh, a church despite a uh, dispute over whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. A 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase for the office. Black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. A big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. Someone finally gave a dime to settle the issue. A dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of just grape juice. A business meeting uh, arguments about whether the church purchased a weed eater or not. It took two church business meetings to resolve the issue. An argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church picnic. (laughs) A disagreement over the term potluck should instead be pot blessing. A church member was chastised because she brought vanilla syrup to the coffee server to flavor the coffee, and the person complained that it looked too much like liquor. And some church, some church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them, and it resulted in such a great fight that the church eventually split. Well, we laugh to keep from crying, don't we? You see, disunity... Um, has threatened the church, not just today, it's threatened it from the very beginning. And that is what is happening in Acts chapter 6. There is a divide. There is something that threatens the church and indeed threatens to split it apart and worse than that, to stop the advance of the gospel. That to cause the church to take their focus off the proclamation of the word the proclamation of the word in word and deed, and to destroy the witness of God's people in Jerusalem during these days. But despite this threat, the wondrous truth and what we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks is despite this threat, the gospel continues to advance. And we see this in this text, verse 1 and then verse 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, And at the end of our section this morning, after we have heard about the division and the disunity in the church, what do we see is still happening? The gospel is still advancing, despite this threat. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so here's the question this morning that leads to our proposition this morning, which is this. How does this happen? How can in a church where you will almost inevitably, because you have a bunch of sinners gathering together, inevitably have division and have conflict uh, with one another. How does the word of God, how does the gospel continue to advance despite this threat? Despite this threat. Well, I got three statements for you this morning that walk very simply through our text. This is a very nuts and bolts, very simple sermon. I hope we don't go too long The word of God continues to advance in the space of division. First, by humbly acknowledging the problems. We're pretty much going to go problems, solutions, results this morning. Humbly acknowledging the problems. The church was functioning like a family. You notice that as we've learned multiple times in these early chapters of Acts, that they have everything in common. People are even selling great their properties and their homes to give in order to care for those who are in great need. The daily distribution, though, what we find, is that even the daily distribution to those who were needy in the church was beginning to break down. And this is common. As churches begin to face problems for two particular reasons, when it grows, because of two things, that when you grow, a church becomes more complex, 
And second, it becomes more diverse. And both of these things can cause significant challenges. Increase of growth and conflict. Growth can be a greater challenge than even stagnation, right? You feel pains, aches and pains when you're growing. When your children grow too fast, they hurt. When a business grows too fast, this has been common over the last 10 or 15 years as we've seen these internet companies that have these great business plans, but it blows up and they can't even handle the demand and it causes great problems. And so the same can happen in churches. I want to point out that there are three problems going on in the church here in Acts 6. Three problems that arise out of this growth and this complexity and diversity. And the first is this, is they have a logistical problem. How are we going to meet the need of the widows? There is structural and administrative confusion. There are things getting lost in the cracks, whether it be on purpose or on accident. There are, there are issues here. And this isn't a biblical proverb, but it is a proverb that we often state, and that is this. The devil is where? In the details. In the details. And yes, this is true for churches. Often you'll hear it from churches that we are only about these few things. And that is true. Our focus is about the word and prayer and sacrament, both here and proclaiming the gospel around the world. But you have the question of how you do that. How you do that. How do you keep the lights on? How do you care for people as they come into your church? You know, one of the greatest uh, ministers of all of American church history, one of the greatest theologians and one of the greatest minds of American history, a guy named Jonathan Edwards. He was actually the president of Princeton Seminary for quite a time. But he was fired by his church after over 20 years of ministry. So even Jonathan Edwards can get fired. And, and the answer, the question is why? Why was Jonathan Edwards fired? Well, there was a number of reasons. But there was a, an event that catalyzed the, his removal from the pulpits that he had served for so many years. There was a group of teenage boys in his church who, that got a hold of a midwife manual. And they utilized their newfound knowledge from that midwife manual to harass some young teenage girls within the congregation. Now, Edwards decided that he was going to put a stop to this, and he found out the names of the young men who were participating in this harassment and misuse of this knowledge that they had now partake of. And he, would, he went to the pulpit one Sunday and began to read the names of the culprits from the pulpit. Now, we could question, have a good debate on whether that was a good idea in and of itself or not, But what was certainly not a good idea is that he also included a list of the young boys who outed those boys. You see, there was a group of of the other young men who had seen this manual as well, but saw the behavior of their friends and went to Jonathan Edwards and shared with, with him what these other young men were doing with their newfound information. But Edwards... did not make a divide between the boys who were using this information to harass young women and the guys who actually outed them who came and shared what was going on in the church. And so he listed all the young men in the church who had any connection to this midwife manual. Well, there were a few people who got a little bit ticked off, and that was the catalyst to him eventually being removed from the pulpit. Why? Because he didn't make a little differential detail, a little administrative mistake that maybe he he didn't have two separate pieces of paper. Who knows what it was? But that mistake caused significant problems and hurts in the church. And this can be the case for many ministries. You know, there's a great book called When Helping Hurts. And there's a lot of things you can read in there that are very helpful in how you go about organizing and 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 engaging with the church and engaging in nonprofit ministry to actually do help for those who are underprivileged in this world. 
There's a great story that's similar to a When Helping Hurts story about a couple who went to an underprivileged neighborhood and they had a great longing to care for the people in that neighborhood. And so they went and opened a clothing store in which they were giving all the clothes away for free. Well, this caused significant problems. Because first, what would happen is the people would find out in the neighborhood that there's free clothes being given away. And so people could come into the store and they would essentially they just ransack the place. And so that resulted that the store owners then had to make some rules. They started making more, okay, you can only come once a day, then only once a week, and then you can only get once a month. And what actually began to happen is there began to be animosity between these people who wanted to come care for this neighborhood and these folks in this underprivileged neighborhood that were now struggling and felt like these laws were being pushed down upon them all the time and they were having to toe the line just to get a few clothes. Well, they eventually shut, shut it down and went back to the drawing board and reopened it. And what they did after they went back to the drawing board was they made a minor change. They started charging for the clothes. Now, at a very reduced price, but what they realized by doing that, one, people wouldn't simply come and ransack the place. But then two, people were allowed to actually retain some sense of dignity to come in and actually buy their clothes for themselves. It also provided jobs for some of the people in that neighborhood. And it provided them a business model or a nonprofit model that could actually be sustainable. The devil is in the details. You see, the gospel is the wind. We want to focus on the gospel. But it's like a sailboat. That you have to know how to turn in such a way to, to maximize the beauty and the power of that wind. And so it takes great skill and great organization and knowing great wisdom as to how to do that. There's a great book on church leadership that I read a number of years ago. I think it was during seminary called The Trellis and the Vine. The Trellis and the, and the Vine. And what it talks about there is in the church that we are the vine. We are this great organism. This thing that the Spirit of God is living and moving and active and we're bearing fruit and we're growing. But there's also a trellis. And the trellis, the purpose of the trellis is not to be seen. Not for you to go, oh, look how wonderful that trellis is. But the trellis is incredibly important for the health of the vine. So many churches, they think we're just going to scatter some seed and it'll be okay. Now, you desperately need a, a, a trellis, an organization, a means of administration to help that vine grow well so that it can have maximum effect and fruitfulness. So they have, first, they have a logistical problem. How are we going to care for all of these widows? And something is happening at some point within the administration of this that is causing a breakdown in the care of these widows. So that's the first problem. The second problem is this. The second problem is they have a cultural problem. And this may be even the more significant one that is here. There is a breakdown that occurs here in the giving towards the widows that runs along ethnic and cultural and racial lines. What was the problem? Well, the church at this time is made up of two particular large subgroups. First, there was the Hebraic, uh, Aramaic-speaking Jews. They had grown up primarily there around Jerusalem. Uh, they had a strong Jewish heritage. But then there was also Hellenistic Greek Jews. These were Jews who had been scattered around the various parts of the known world. And yet, while they still had a Jewish heritage, they had lived in far other places they had learned, uh, they spoke a different language, primarily Greek. And so what we find is that these two group, groups of people are now functioning within the church. Now, there was, they had much in common, right? They have the same Lord, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And that is incredibly important. 
And yet, despite that, because of their cultural and ethnic differences, there appears to be a divide. In one group, the Hellenistic widows are, are rising up and saying, we're being mistreated. We're being a second, treated as second-class citizens and even discriminated against within the church. This is not the way it's supposed to be. But it's hard. This is the challenge of the church. It's hard when culturally distinct people come together as one family. You know, one of the challenges that you, some of you may have even experienced this in your own life is when you have two families that perhaps there was a divorce or death in the past, and you have two families coming together to be a blended family. That is not an easy transition. There is conflict left and right about what the way one family did it and the way another family did it, and that's the same thing that's going on in the church, is there is a great cultural divide, and there's confusion that often happens because of it. These people don't even speak the same language. Imagine coming to church. What, what, what language do we sing the worship in? What does the, the pastor preach by what language? And yet we don't have the option as God's people who are supposed to be, be exemplify the fact of what God is doing, that all tribes and tongues and nations are coming together as one people, one nation under Jesus Christ. We don't have the option of dividing. Usually church divisions are not necessarily over core doctrines. That's how we... That's how we would, in seminary, that's how we think of it, of, 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 you know, church conflict happening. That's rarely the case. It's almost always over cultural issues. Hebrew Jews, you know, it's the case here. Hebrew Jews would have grown up as very conservative. They would have grown up in a very conservative environment. They would have grown up in a primarily more sheltered environment. They would have grown up in a certain way in which you do worship and the way in which you go to the synagogue. And that, and, but yet the Hellenistic Jews, that's not the way. They would have usually grown up in, very, in pagan cities and cosmopolitan cities. This is like the divide we often see between homeschoolers and public schoolers, between country people and city people, and yet we're called to come together and be in the same church. And yet we have to try to get over these cultural challenges that often divide us, these different ways of viewing the way life ought to be done. But if the early church can't face this problem, it can't grow. How can the church face a world, remember, they're only in Jerusalem right now. I mean, there's a, there's a language divide, but all these people at least have at least pretty much a Jewish background to point back to. And yet their call is to go to all nations. If we can't deal with this, this is minor in comparison to where we're supposed to go as a church. Welcome to the church of Jesus Christ, the place where utter, utterly disparate people are trying to become a family. But this, this is an opportunity for Satan to divide us. It's in these cracks, cultural cracks, personality cracks, that he often gets into to cause problems. So first, we have a logistical or administrative problem. Second, we have a cultural or, or ethnic problem. And the third is we have a calling problem or a role problem. They summon, it looks like, look what happens here, the 12 in verse 2. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Here's the issue. The apostles say, our calling, our gifting, our role is to proclaim the word of God. But the need, understand this, at this time, the church is probably somewhere between 10,000 and 20,000 people in the church in Jerusalem. This is no small task. And so these 12 guys are going, listen, if all, all our time with this many people and this many needs and this many cares, if, all, if we're to address all these issues, it's going to take up all of our time. And we're not going to have any time. 
any, any moment to study, any time to teach and preach and communicate the good news of Jesus Christ, to evangelize effectively in the temple and the synagogues. And so we have a calling problem here. That the, this is not the calling of the apostles to necessarily be administrators, to constantly be looking over logistical problems. Their calling is different. It is, it is specific and it is narrow to be men of the words. And so there's a clear threat here to the early church, a clear threat that would undermine the advancement of the gospel, an advancement of the go- a clear threat that undermines both the church's ability to exemplify the gospel in the way in which they unite together and care for another. So exemplifying the gospel, proclaiming the gospel indeed, and also it under, threatens to undermine the proclamation of the gospel in word because it might take those who are gifted in that area and make them people who serve tables. And so this is the threat to the church. And how do they address it? Well, I think here is the wisdom. And there's, I think where we're primarily going to focus, this is not the most gospel-centric sermon this morning. This is a lot of wisdom and nuts and bolts for the church. But how is the threat of division overcome? I'd say this very simply is by humbly acknowledging the problems. They looked at those problems, and they didn't turn their eye away from them. They addressed them. They don't try to squash the complaint. You know, the, the response of insecure leadership, the response of an insecure church, when people communicate and say, hey, there's a problem over here. Hey, we're being discriminated against. Hey, this is not right. Hey, there's a breakdown. The, the insecure church says, shh, you're causing division. You're causing division. You're complaining. Let's focus on the fact that you're complaining instead of focus on the fact that you might be dying because you don't have food. Let's focus on the fact that you're complaining instead of focus on the fact that you might be being shot in the streets. I might be hinting at something. You see, there is a, a push here that we, we have to be a church that is so secure in the gospel that we would allow people to come in and say, something's not right. There's a breakdown here. There's something that we need to address. Leaders need to learn to say, we are trying to communicate, and we're trying to care for all the peoples, but we have a lot to learn still. We are not getting this right, and we haven't gotten it right in 2,000 years. You see, God is still sanctifying us, and we should understand that. And the gospel gives you the security to say, you know what? Maybe we don't have it all right. A new person who comes to our church has new eyes, new glasses through which they see things. We need to hear from them. And yes, we may not like the fact that they're complaining. We may not like the approach by which they're doing this. But maybe we should respond to it. You know, I had a great conversation with somebody in our church about a year ago. A young woman in our church who had gone overseas as a missionary. And, and we had a breakdown. We hardly communicated with her. There was hardly any encouragement. And she came back, and she was so happy back out of our church and so happy to worship with us. But she had a very frank conversation with me one of, one of her first weeks back, but a, a genuine and kind and respectful conversation that said, I was hurt by the fact that no one called me, no one wrote me. This was my church. And the answer had to be, you're absolutely right. We, we failed. And guess what? We're still not getting it right. We're still not getting it right. But listen, we want to constantly sanctify not only just our motivations, not just the desire to get it right, but the actual approach to get it right. And so we ought to humbly acknowledge the problems, not turn a deaf ear to them, not tell people to shush, 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 shush. You're the one causing disunity, but address the issue. Second, if we want to wisely, 
We want to address this issue for the cause of the gospel advancement so that the division, the threat of division doesn't threaten the church. We want, must wisely seek solutions. Wisely seek solutions. I want you to see what they don't do here in the church. Here's what they don't do in response to this issue. First, they don't call a committee without solutions. Churches are known for this kind of ridiculousness. Let's kick the can down for the next guys. Let's try to just kind of, we'll form a few people who will gather around and they'll talk about the issue and never do anything. God loves men and women of action. God loves men and women of action. Second, they also, they don't divide the church. What's our, what's our approach when there's complaints and when there's cultural differences? The way the approach of the, the American church and the church, frankly, around the world is to do what? You know what? We have a Jewish group over here, and they speak this language, and we have this Hellenistic group over here. So here's what we're going to do. First Jewish church of Jerusalem, you guys are started. First Hellenistic Greek-speaking church of Jerusalem, you are now started. And now we have this great, we have these two churches cut along cultural lines. That's not what they do. They don't divide the church. They see that this, we, we're going to stay together. We are not going to be separated by this issue. They also don't try to fix it themselves. Twelve guys don't look around at each other and go, oh yeah, we got this. We have all the wisdom. We are, and you know, you know who the apostles all are? They're not Greek dudes. They're all Jewish-speaking guys, Aramaic-speaking men. And so they don't go, you know what? I bet we really have, we really understand Hellenistic widows. And so we're going to, we, it is just our wisdom in and of ourselves that we can figure this out. That's not what they do. Now, what do they do? They actually put a solution-based response that led towards greater unity. And here are the steps that they take, four of them. The first step they take is what? They gather the people. What are they doing here? They have a community participation in solving a community problem. Community participation in solving a community problem. Now listen, there are things, as elders of our church, there are many sins and there are many problems in the church that have to be dealt with behind closed doors that by the grace of God that you'll never know about. But there are other things that if it's a community problem, that it should be a community solution. And by the way, this encourages unity, doesn't it? This, doesn't, this, doesn't, this isn't some people getting together and saying, you know what, this is the Hellenist problem. Or this is the Hebraic problem. This isn't a you problem or a me problem. This is a we problem. Some of you in your marriages could really get this. This is one of the things I talk about in premarital counseling. You know when you fight, it's not a you problem or a me problem. It's a we problem. Because what? We are one now. We are one now. And that is what we are as a church. We are unified together. This is a we problem. We take vows of church membership not only as a means of unifying us around one profession of faith, but as a, as a means of vowing to one another that we will submit to one another, that we will care for one another, that we will pursue this kind of unity. So they call and gather the people together. Second, they establish spiritual standards. What do they do? Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Men full of the Spirit. In wisdom. That's the qualification for ministry offices. They want to find men who are exemplifying what it is to live out of the fruit of the Spirit. You want to serve in the church, even if it's in social care, waiting on tables. You want to lead the church in those, those activities that your life must be evident, have a full evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. 
They should be men of wisdom. That means you don't just get, you know, the first high schooler that graduates and knows his Bible. Mark Twain talks about this, right? He thought his dad was an idiot when he was 15. And he came back after living on his own at 21, and he said, my goodness, my dad has really gotten a lot smarter in the last six years. So there's warnings about not bringing on into church officer roles and leadership roles those who are young in the faith, those who are immature. We want men of wisdom. Third, third thing, the step that they take is they sensitively select. It's a community problem. They establish spiritual standards, and they sensitively select. In verse 5, what you'll notice about all seven of these deacons, they have, they, do they have particularly Hebrew-sounding names? No. All these guys, they aren't Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hezekiah. In other words, they don't have, you know, a homeschool family names. They're not all named after minor prophets and the sons of Jacob. No, what they're named after is Stephanus and Philippus and Prochorus and Nicanor. What are these names? These are Greek names. You know what they do? They go, you know what? This is such a, you know, the the estimates are that the church at that time was probably only about 10 to 15% Hellenist. And so they say, you know, we're going to honor the minority. And we're going to raise up. Now, listen, they, it, the spiritual standard came first, right? This is not affirmative action. We're saying, you know what? You know, if, if they're just decent people, then they get to be an officer. No, no, there's a spiritual standard they have to reach. But then second, they sensitively set aside the men who can culturally and ethically and best engage with this problem. So it seems here that the deacons are appointed are to oversee this whole issue are Greek-speaking. This is a master stroke of wisdom, that we can't figure it all out. Let's go to the ones who are much better. These are their mamas. These are the aunties. And so perhaps they know better than we do. So they, you know, they could have said, you know what? What we should do is we should just have, they only represent about maybe 10, 15%. So we're only going to have one Greek-speaking deacon. Or two, maybe at max. No, it's all seven of them are Greek-speaking men. This is a bold action that does what? that seeks the harmony in the, process, in the midst of diversity to engage the church in this activity. Fourth and finally, fourth and final step, they delegate leadership or responsibility. And they do this through what we call ordination. They lay their hands on these men. They set them aside to lead the church in the caring for the widows and the orphans. The heart of the solution is this. Not everyone should do everything. One of the most important parts of leadership is that your leadership won't go very far if you're the only one leading. Did you know the average church in America? The average church in America. Well, first, before I get to that, did you know the average amount of of people that one pastor has found that one pastor can, can engage with is 75 people? Now, if he has really significant skills, he he can make people feel love and engage with them and connect with them, maybe up to 100 or 120. But 75 is the average. Now, back to what I was about to say before. You know what the average size of the church is in America? 75. You know why? Because we have a view of the pastorate in which that guy, we pay him, and he does everything, and the church never grows. Because it's all based on his ability to connect with every man, woman, child, teach everything, to clean everything, to do everything, to make every decision. And that is not how God has designed the church family to work. And good leadership is not one that says, I'm going to hoard all control and all power and all authority. And you as a church shouldn't want that either from your pastors. 
Now, a growing organism requires new levels of leadership and new forms of, yes, organization. There's a great, it's a theological paradigm. If you want to know where to get it, go to read Herman Bovink. He's a Dutch reform guy. It's a great translation. And this is, a, we're going deep theology, but he's got this great outline where he talks about the organism of the church versus the organization, organization of the church or the institution of the church. The organism of the church is you who go out, you're scattered, and you're to bear fruit in all sorts of places to do things that you're called to do as Christians, to serve and care for one another. But then there's the institution of the church. The institution of the church is particularly that which is narrowly defined by those under the authority and the headship of the elders and the deacons, that they oversee word, prayer, and sacraments within the church, and the care, merciful care of those who are members of the church. And as the church grows... Listen, we, some people say, oh, we, we don't need that institutional church, that organization. This seems so unspiritual. Well, guess what? It's so unspiritual that you'll be able to affect almost nobody. We think, oh, if we'll just be in this disparate part, it's just blowing in the wind. We're like, you know, what are those things your kids get a hold of and they blow and they just seeds going? That's who we are as a church. That, okay, that, that is. But we're also an organization. We're also an institution. And my guess is, where do you think the disciples got this idea of finding people to ordain and to set aside and delegate ministry? My guess is they got it from the Bible, because there was another time in which God was forming a people, and things seemed to be going pretty good. They're, they're moving out of Egypt, and they're moving along the promised land, or the, the desert to go to the promised land, and things are hunky-dory, and then what happens? Moses can't handle all the issues amongst the people of Israel, and so what does God do? God raises up a non-believing, non-Israelite, to come to Moses and say, yo, bro, you can't handle all this. You need to develop an organizational chart. You know, in my tribe, in the very uber-reformed, very conservative, we love word, prayer, and sacrament, and I am with them. But what we mean often by that is we say we should do nothing else, and we should read nothing else. Well, guess what? Elders, deacons, church leaders, nonprofit leaders, you know what we should read? We should probably read businessmen, we should read things like Good to Great. We should read things like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. We should study organizational charts. You know why? Because it means the gospel will advance further. And we're not so stuck up in our own wisdom and our own ability to figure it all out, but we can actually go outside the church. And there's men who God has given common grace wisdom to from whom we can learn. You know, the pattern in churches right now, and it used to be that you have a senior pastor, and then you know your first hire would be the youth pastor. Well, that went away a long time ago. Then, the, and then for a long time, you know what the pattern was. You have the senior pastor, and then your first hire would be the worship pastor. Well, that has gone away. You know now your first hire is? For most church plants, that what they actually try to start a church with is not only just a teaching pastor, but what they call the executive pastor, who is essentially a head deacon. And almost always, those men don't come from seminary. Those men come from the business world. Why? Because they're what? They're spiritual men who have great wisdom who can come help the church advance the gospel. And so we should listen. We should listen to the truths that are out, out there. Listen, here's the threat, of, the threat of division. How is it overcome? By wisely seeking solutions, not sitting on your hands. Good leaders, good churches, they do something when there's a problem. You know, in Jeremiah, there's these prophets. They're going, they're going peace, peace, where there is no peace. And God's going, what are you, you're liars. And too often because we have passive leadership in churches. And we have churches that don't want to actually deal with conflict. Because that would be scary. And you know what? It's, you know what? it's a lot easier to teach Sunday school than it is to deal with conflict. 
I could stay in my study all day long, and I could execute a text, and it'll take me 30 minutes, and I could walk out, and I can, I can, I can tell you what a text says. I'm well-trained in that. You know what kicks my tail all the time and causes me so much stress and heartache and time is peacemaking. It's conflict resolution. But good leaders, they don't hide in their offices. They don't hide behind their desks. They go towards the problems. Husbands, God's called you to be leaders. Your wife has been saying there's a problem for 20 years. And you're still sitting on your hands. Good leaders seek wise solutions, so pursue it. Well, not only do they humbly acknowledge the problem and wisely seek solutions, but one last point. Lastly, they holistically and comprehensively fulfill the ministry and pursue results. Comprehensively pursuing results. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The whole premise of this sermon has been based on the fact that it isn't, it's amazing. They didn't divide. They didn't split. The church didn't die. The church advanced, even in face of this threat of division. And what happens? What does it say? The word of God advances. Disciples are multiplied. But what I want to focus on in this last point is the end of verse 7, which says this. And a great many priests became obedient to the faith. But that is an odd statement. Where did that come from? That's an interesting aside. Here's Jewish leaders who have been naturally opposed to the growth of the church are flocking to the faith. Now, there is a purpose in this statement by Luke. There, oh, that is an aside that bristles with meaning and significance. The fact that there is these priests that are flocking and coming to the church in droves. Why were a whole lot of priests converted? In the Old Testament, who was it who cared for the poor? It was the priests. It was the Old Testament. It was, it was the priests who cared for the poor, who, who, cared, who had daily distribution of the food on a day-in and week-out basis. And what the priests are saying when they look at the church is they're looking at the church and they're going, oh, my goodness, look at this. Not only are they preaching the word faithfully, but they're living out what it means to be priests. And the whole church is doing it. In other words, they're looking at the church and they're going, this is what Israel was always meant to be and supposed to be. The people of God were supposed to be this people who gathered together to care for one another as one nation. And when they look at the church and they see this beautiful example of the church gathering together, selling their possessions, and creating a way to care for who are broken and needy in their congregation. Now this points us to the principle of something in the New Testament. The New Testament picks up one of the themes from the Old Testament. And that is what is called the priesthood of believers. And the place where that we see that is 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. You may be very familiar with this text. It says this, But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, what's First Peter saying? Is that as a new people, we are a spiritual priesthood. We are the priests. It is not set aside for a few special people to do all the work. We are the priesthood of believers. We minister together, and we proclaim the gospel together. And what this allows us to do, and what we see, is that what we see in the New Testament is that we see ministers of the word and ministers of deed. But both have the goal and have the job of proclaiming the gospel. Some exemplify the gospel in deed. Some communicate the gospel in words. Word and deed ministry as a royal priesthood are supposed to go together. 
that we as a people, it is not the preachers who should get all the glory. It is often, it is those who are on their hands and feet, who are down on their knees, who are serving and caring in the church. Don't aspire to my role. Aspire to the role that God has called you. We, we honored Dwight and Mary a couple weeks ago. Dwight's been an elder in our church. But Dwight has also exemplified what it means to serve in this church as well. To care for those who are needy and those who are broken. And what we see here, this is often the text that people go back to as being the start of the, what is called the diaconate. Now that may be true. It may receive its, its heritage here. But actually the, verb, the word here, the Greek words, is not mean deacon. It simply means ministers. And you are all called to be ministers of the gospel. We do a disservice when we call pastors ministers. Oh, I'm entering the ministry. Guess what? When you became a Christian, you entered the ministry. It wasn't just me. It wasn't a few seminary-trained guys. It wasn't a few people we laid hands on. It was every Tom, Dick, and Harry who called themselves by the name of Jesus. Because you've been filled by the Holy Spirit, and you're called to give the gospel and to bear the gospel to the people in the church and around the world. Now listen, there are special people who are set aside to lead us in that. And we set them aside in ordination. But this is a call for all of us. Now how is the threat of division overcome? You see, the threat of division is overcome in this way. When we all understand our roles. When we take up the role that God has called us. And when we don't point the finger and tell the other role that you're less spiritual than I am. That when the teachers don't say, it's us. We're the glorious ones. And with the people who know how to swing a hammer and care for the broken, that they're, oh, those teachers, they're such hypocrites. Look at them. All they do is they teach and they never get down and they never care for the broken people. Listen, we've been called to different tasks. And yes, there will be times when you're supposed to use your words. And there are times when us who speak are supposed to use our hands. But we have the main gifts to which God has called us to do by all the members of the body. We, we overcome division by when all the members of the body are using the gifts that God has given us. And we're affirming the gifts of those around us. Caring for one another. One colluding thoughts, and we'll go to the table. This has not been the most gospel-centered sermon. And I usually desire that. There are a lot of wisdom principles here, but I want, as we go to the table, to lift our eyes off of ourselves and lift them up. It says this in verse 10 of 1 Peter 2. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How do you become a passionate teacher of God's word? By hearing the sweet truth, the teaching of God's mercy. And you go, I have to tell other people about that. How do you become a great deacon, a great minister with your hands of service when you've experienced the mercy of God upon you? When you experience the one who came, what? Not to be served, but to serve. And he didn't just get down on his hands and knees. He did that to wash feet. But he got up and went to a cross. And when you've experienced that kind of mercy, you look around to the broken and the needy, the widow and the orphan, and you say, I will engage, and I will enter in with mercy because God has been merciful to me. Let's pray, and let's go to the table. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been so merciful to us as we, we sang earlier about the ransom theme in the scriptures, that we were a people who were running from you. We were a people enslaved to sin. We were a people deserving wrath. And yet you had mercy on us. You looked upon us with your eyes with mercy 
and love and affection. And so, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that the mercy that we have experienced from you, that, Lord, you would enable us as a people to extend that to one another. That, Lord, when the leaders in this place, when we fail, whether it be administratively or even, Lord, in outright sin, outright cultural indifference, Lord, that we would be quick to forgive. Lord, Lord that when there's complaints, that, Lord, we would... We would we would run to the mercy of God knowing that, yes, we have failed in some way or we're being told we've failed in some way. And yet we would go to the mercy of God and say, oh, God, you're merciful to me. I can withstand. I can withstand these complaints. And I can move forward and I can engage. So, Lord, we now come to the table, the table of mercy. The table of mercy where we, we remember and we experience and we taste of your mercy of us. And, Lord, we set aside these elements, this bread and this cup. A simple bread and a simple cup that represent your body and blood. And I pray that you'd use it to, to remind us of how merciful you have been to us. To the degree and extent to which you would go to teach us, to live out the gospel, and to proclaim to us the gospel. To give us the good news. So God, I pray that you would encourage us to love and good deeds through your table this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.